I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, November 14th, 2023. Coming up, how to turn human waste into treasures, like solutions to our drinking water crisis and soil degradation. Our guest is Dr. Bryn Nilsson, a science journalist and former microbiologist. His debut book, called Flush, The Remarkable Science of an Unlikely Treasure, recently appeared in paperback. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A couple weeks ago on How on Earth, we talked with astrobiologist Dr. Adam Frank about the search for extraterrestrial life and what type of environment and energy source life needs to thrive and evolve. A first guess is that life out there is similar to life here on Earth, which is likely a good first assumption. But a recent discovery published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences points to life with a surprisingly different metabolic process, predicted 30 years ago, and perhaps first appeared on Earth over 2 billion years ago. When a biologist was studying sludge from a sewage plant in Konstanz, Germany, he discovered a microorganism that got its energy from phosphite. This fit in with a study made by another researcher back in the 1980s that the conversion of the chemical compound phosphite to phosphate would release enough energy to produce a cell's energy carrier, the ATP molecule. That means, unlike most living organisms on our planet, such an organism would not be dependent on energy supplied from light or from the decomposition of organic matter. At the time of that first analysis, the researchers were able to isolate such a microorganism, but the enzyme needed to understand the biochemistry behind the process could not be determined. Using the new bacterium discovered recently in the sewage sludge, researchers produced a pure culture of this new bacterial strain in which they were finally able to identify the key enzyme that triggers the oxidation of phosphite to phosphate. This bacteria not only is a new species, but actually forms an entirely new genus of bacteria. However, this process was likely developed by life early on in the Earth over 2.5 billion years ago, when life on our planet began and the first microorganisms had to feed on inorganic compounds such as phosphite. This process can lead to clues to the early biochemical evolution on our planet. In addition, they can provide the key to a biochemical mechanism that makes life possible in very hostile places, possibly even on alien planets. For How on Earth, I'm Joel Parker. Some of the dreams about artificial intelligence making people look better online date back to an animated sci-fi show that started in the 1960s called The Jetsons. In the futuristic world of The Jetsons, Jane Jetson often woke up with disheveled hair and puffy eyes. So when her stylish friend Gloria called on the video phone, Jane said, I can't let Gloria see me like this. I've got to put on my morning mask. Jane's morning mask made her instantly bright-eyed with perfect hair. Fast forward 60 years. In today's world, artificial intelligence adjustments can make people in a video call look even better than in real life. AI makes faces more symmetrical. It smooths wrinkles and blemishes. 
and it doesn't require a Jetson-like morning mask for all this to happen. AI can add the perfection of hyperrealism automatically. At least, AI does this if a person has light-toned skin. A new study from the Australian National University reports that people rated AI-generated headshots as more real than photos of actual people, with a catch. People rated AI more real if the headshots showed someone with light-colored skin. Australian researcher Amy Dowell says AI has a skin color bias because most of AI has been trained on images with light-colored skin. For faces with darker skin, AI tends to be sloppier. Plus, it tends to lighten up darker skin and eyes. Dr. Dow cautions that AI's clumsier depiction for people of color can reinforce racial prejudices. She recommends that AI developers train AI on faces with a variety of skin tones. Dow adds that as AI gets better, there's another challenge. The increasing skill of AI to mimic us increases the risk of identity theft. Dow urges more public education about the pitfalls of believing everything AI. This research has just been published in the journal Psychological Science. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. You're listening to KG News Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. You've heard the saying, one man's trash is another man's treasure. Well, today we're discussing the power of poop. Yep, this daily byproduct of our digestive system can be, and actually already is being explored as a solution to several public health and environmental challenges of our time, such as drinking water shortages and degraded farmland. My guest is Dr. Bryn Nilsson. He's a science writer and former microbiologist. His debut book called Flush, the Remarkable Science of an Unlikely Treasure recently came out in paperback. Dr. Nielsen joins us from his home office in Seattle, Washington. Bryn, welcome to How on Earth. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much. Uh, it's such a pleasure to be on the show. So great to have you. Um, so I wanted to start just by saying there's so much to this book. We won't focus on all of it, but what brought you to this point of obsession? <laughs> During a lot of your reporting on, you know, poop and beyond into book product. Right. Well, I'm a microbiologist by background. And so I've always been really fascinated with microbes. And I think um, <clears throat> I did a story about uh, the power of fecal transplants, literally uh, transplanting someone's healthy microbiome into someone else's gut to cure a horrible bacterial infection. And I was just so blown away by the story and the idea that disgust was literally killing people. Mm. And so thinking about, well, if we turn that around and think of it more as a resource, you know, perhaps a, uh, a very poorly understood resource, but, but a resource nonetheless, what, what else could we do with it? And so I started collecting other ideas and other stories about basically getting in better balance with our uh, inner ecosystem as well as the ecosystem all around us. Interesting. And we've had uh, several folks, including Dr. Rob Knight, who was at CU Boulder and I think is now still at UC San Diego on the show about the fecal transplants and some of the more recent research. I won't focus so much on that this time, but I wanted to have you start by reading a passage that I think um, distills and illuminates a lot of this, starting on page eight. Sure, sure. 
Unlocking poop's enormous potential will require us to overcome our shame, disgust, and indifference. Embracing our role as both the physical producers and the moral architects of a more just and habitable planet. More than that, to become, <clears throat> to become the standard bearers our feces deserve, we will need to change our collective Western mindset about what has worth, what moves us forward, and what it means to live in balance. A world that, has, that values and elevates the importance of our everyday output <clears throat> is one that no longer prioritizes the new and shiny as default options to solve climate change and other daunting challenges. It's one that resists the siren song of disruptive, exploitative, and proprietary innovation and embraces a future of progress through imaginative, retrofitting, and reinvention. It is a world where we no longer require simple or pretty answers, but ones that offer more lasting solutions. Our poop is substance, not style, form, not flash, but there is undeniable strength in its numbers and the whole of our ample product is greater than the sum of its many parts. Locked within us is a medicine cabinet, a mound of fuel briquettes, a bag of fertilizer, and a biogas pipeline. Because of us and what comes out of us, a dying mother recovers, the lights come on, the crops grow, a bus accelerates. Sometimes hope arrives in surprising packages. Wow. <laughs> so much there. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to dive into something that resonates with all of us here in Colorado and, and broadly the West is climate change and water scarcity. Shall we say we're facing a looming, if not current, drinking water crisis here in the American West, thanks to not only climate change and drought, but bad water management and, of course, politics. Do you think it's inevitable and necessary that we will all be drinking processed wastewater. Um, yes, actually. And, and I think, you know, there is this disgust factor, right? There's this yuck factor that we have to get over. But I think it's also helpful to think historically about the fact that all water on earth is recycled. Mm -hmm. um, there is a uh, author, uh, Charles Fishman, he, he wrote uh, The Big Thirst. And, and I love the, the comment that he made that basically every drink of water that you take, every pot of coffee that you make is dinosaur pee because this has all been recycled and it's all yeah. been the, through the kidneys of other living things. So I think it's really helpful for us to know that this water is, is naturally being recycled and we have the ability to clean it back to its original state. And I think it's more of a psychological hurdle than a technical hurdle at this point. Yeah, so since you spent a lot of time on this, I take it you uh, have been drinking some. I have not yet. I gotta say, we'll <laughs> get over the yuck factor. But well, let me tell you how I was able to get over the, the yuck factor, and that is through something that I think a lot of people in Colorado can relate to. That is beer. There you go. And um, yeah, so so it turns out that uh, brewers are very good chemists. And if you can take water back to its original state, you can make any type of beer that you want uh, because you're not limited to, to the local profile of the, of the, of the water, the, the water source. And so brewers have actually become really good at uh, 
getting the, com the, the public more comfortable with the idea of recycled water. And so the way that it works is that there's been a number of demonstrations. Uh, these have happened at uh, beer festivals uh, throughout the country, more, more so in the West, uh, but including in Colorado, um, where you have a, uh, a wastewater treatment plant that cleans the water to a point at which there is nothing left in the water. It's just H2O. And so it's a perfectly clean slate. And so they give that water then to the brewers who can then make any kind of beer that they want. And then, you know, at, at a festival, when you give out a free beer, you can have that conversation with someone about, you know, all water has been reused. This is perfectly safe. This is how we do this. And it helps them kind of get over that, that yuck factor. And, and, and you know, just on a chemical level, is it actually beneficial for breweries to start with this, quote, clean slate and add microbes to their liking versus start with water that has all kinds of, I mean, normal wastewater treatment water, but not from, from human sewage, but has different microbes in it? Is there a difference there? <clears throat> Well, the difference is basically that the water that you start with after this process is so clean that you probably shouldn't drink a lot of it because there's no um, <clears throat> salts in it. And so it could actually leach water out of you. So typically what happens is with a municipal water source, there's a particular amount of like calcium, uh, uh, different minerals, right? And so this particular water, it's like distilled water. And so the... Uh, brewers will add things back. And so they'll have different recipes for this is the type of water that we want to start with. But but it's easier to do if you have a blank slate. So, so in terms of safety, this water is probably safer than a lot of water that we start with from aquifers, from rivers, because it is so clean. So yeah, so it is, it is quite safe. So what are some of the brewers, especially here in Colorado? that are experimenting with this? Well, one uh, that I found is a declaration brewing company in Denver. Um, also Denver Water um, has uh, been part of this. It's, it's, uh, it's called the Pure Water Brewing Alliance. And um, so this, this particular alliance, uh, and they've been very uh, careful about naming it because of course, uh, some of the brewers had more colorful names for the beers that they came up with. And <laughs> the whole point is to get people comfortable with this. And so you wanna emphasize that, you know, this is pure. Um, <clears throat> but so that was one of the uh, the brewers that I found in, in Colorado. There were others um, throughout the West in uh, Oregon, uh, California, Idaho, other places like that. But it, it is sort of a growing movement throughout the, the, the and country. And it has to be a demo, has to be given away, can't be sold. What, what are the regulatory uh, stipulations or hurdles there? Correct. Um, so it depends on the state. And this is just, a, this is a new concept, right? So I think the regulatory authorities have to get comfortable with the idea that this is this is something new. I think this is going to be, you know, in five or 10 years, uh, a very standard practice. But, you know, anytime that you have something that's new, you have to get people comfortable with it. And that includes the regulatory authorities. So the first step is uh, making sure that it's safe, uh, you know, which, which it is, and that's why you have regulations. Uh, but then I think over time, as, as they get comfortable with it, they'll understand that this particular water is in fact even better than uh, the, the typical 
typical water that you would start with. And that's because uh, you, you go through a ver reverse osmosis, a microfiltration, there's a UV treatment that goes into it, as well as a hydrogen peroxide treatment. So, so it's a very, very thoroughly cleaned. And stripped of PFAS, the forever chemicals, I take it as well? Correct. Yeah, actually, reverse osmosis is very good at stripping away PFAS. Yes. Yeah. So Denver water is a huge player, obviously the biggest here in Colorado. So is it just a matter of time or is this more a PR stunt on Denver water's part? I, I think it's, I, you know, I, I think it's both. I mean, I think you want to get people's attention, right? But then the hope is that this is a lasting thing. It's not just a flash in the pan um, and that you are, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're doing this because you're committed to the idea of getting uh, people comfortable to water. Because, you know, like you said, in, in the West and in Colorado, that's going to be a fact of life. And so I think getting people comfortable with the idea that we have a lot of water that we're not reusing and that we should, uh, you know, I think this hopefully is one way of, of getting people past that psychological hurdle. Interesting. And so what are other first cities in the U.S. and then countries or regions, for that matter, overseas that are in the lead and have gone you know, beyond these sort of small scale demo projects? Sure. So one of the, the biggest uh, water reclamation uh, plants in the U.S. is in Orange County. Um, and I would say they're probably the largest in the world right now. Um, Singapore is also doing quite a bit uh, of work in this. Um, there are a, a number of different smaller places around the world and, and the U.S. as well. Uh, but, but basically, uh, you have either direct reuse or indirect reuse. And in the United States right now, it's indirect. And what that means is that you're basically cleaning this water to the level that it could go straight to people's homes. But instead, what they're doing is using it to recharge aquifers. And so the clean water is going down, you're having even more cleaning as you go down through the natural, you know, porous soil. It is then in the aquifer and then can be uh, drawn up again. Um, now, I would argue that the water that you're pumping down into the aquifer is arguably just as clean, if not more clean than what you have in the aquifer. But again, you know, it takes time to get people comfortable with, you know, a new idea like this. It and seems so, like it would take a lot less time to get people comfortable with the indirect. This, you know, it's going into the aquifers and naturally it's doing its own filtration thing versus the direct so-called potable reuse to your correct. Right. That's that's correct. And that's and that's why uh, uh, places like uh, Orange County are doing the indirect because uh, we have this uh, psychological concept where uh, if if the water goes away and then it comes back, then it's magically clean, right? So so a lot of it is just uh, the limitations of of psychology and 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 you know there's been a lot of of study into what grosses us out, right? What's <laughs> what's behind the yuck factor? And, the, and the grossness, <laughs> exactly. But but a lot of these projects to be successful, you have to keep that in mind. It's it's not just the technology, it's the psychology, because you have to get people comfortable with it or they're not going to use it. And then just briefly, what about the economic side and the scalability of the indirect versus direct potable reuse? Sure. So a lot of other... Um, 
uh, wastewater treatment plants and water districts are now uh, looking into this as well. And so this is being scaled up uh, in, in part because it has to be, uh, because people are understanding that what we're doing is we're cleaning water and then basically flushing the fresh water into the ocean. Um, you know, and then we would have to use desalination. So, you know, it's it makes sense that if you have fresh water that you're cleaning, you would reuse it uh, for for fresh water for for potable drinking. And so, uh, a, a lot of places, especially in California, are now scaling up and doing this. And so, basically, you have uh, uh, water reclamation districts that are teaming up with uh, water treatment plants. Hmm. And so, the water treatment plant will treat it to the certain level uh, where they would normally discharge it. It then goes for an additional three to four steps of cleaning um, at sometimes even the next door <laughs> adjacent plant. So sometimes you're actually having these water reclamation plants that are being built directly next door uh, to, to a, a water treatment plant. And so I think you're going to see this much more commonly. Um, this was something that was tried about 10, 15 years ago. Uh, people were grossed out by it. Uh, there was a lot of politics. It didn't catch on. I think this time is different because people understand the urgency of, of, of water. And we just we simply don't have enough and we have to reuse what we have. Interesting. For those joining us a bit late, you're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran, and I'm talking with Dr. Bryn Nilsson, a science writer and former microbiologist whose debut book, Flush, The Remarkable Science of an Unlikely Treasure, has just come out in paperback. So I want to turn to land and food and food scarcity and sure. thus the role that, or should we say the power of poop to fertilize the planet, or at least part of it. And I think there's a really a fascinating history that you write about in the book. And it's going back not as far as one can, but to the 17th century Japan, where the farmers called this precious deposit Shimogoe, which literally translates, I think, to fertilizer from the bottom of a person. Right. What's the story and what can that tell us now? Yeah, this is a really fun story. And and basically, this was a commodity that was so valuable that farmers would hire agents and they would go door to door collecting this. And so if you were had a rental property, the landlords discovered that this was really valuable. So they declared that everything that was deposited, you know, essentially in, in the bathroom was their property <laughs> so that they could then make money from it. Right. So you had, um, you know, dueling agents that would, you know, try and get the best price. Um, in some cases, people would go to jail for stealing it from other people. So, so, this was really a hot commodity, so, yeah, to, so to speak. So no to speak, wars, right? though, like like the wars over guano, penguin guano, and such, in Chile and Argentina way back. Yeah, when. right, right. Maybe not to that scale, but <laughs> but but certainly they recognized the value of it. And 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 if you think about it, I mean, this is not so different from you know cow manure from chicken manure, right? So we've been doing this for centuries. It's just that. I think in Western culture within the last century, uh, we've kind of turned away from it and, you know, 
been grossed out by it. But if you think throughout history, the way that nature recycles, <clears throat> poop is is basically nature's recycling system, mm-hmm. and it's and it's full of nutrients. Um, so this is the way that you uh, you know grow plants on the plains in the Dakotas, where you have buffalo, uh, where basically uh, you know, different entire ecosystems are dependent on uh, on bison poop. So, so if you think about it, this is, this is a natural process and, and it's, it, you know, certain cultures have recognized that we have kind of turned away from it, but I think now, you know, the, the pendulum is swinging and we're, we're starting to recognize the value and the necessity of natural fertilizer. Yeah. And we only have a couple of minutes left, unfortunately, but I want to ask about um, the regulatory issues, but first there's a really interesting case study right here in our backyard, Denver, but particularly it sounds like Fort Collins is doing some interesting experimenting. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so, uh, you know, so Fort Collins owns some rangeland north of the city. And so with some researchers at Colorado State University, um, they've actually been looking at what's the best uh, amount of biosolids to be distributing to the landscape. And the whole idea is there is that you're trying to restore what has been uh, degraded rangelands. And so we are essentially uh, supplementing the poop of grazers, but doing it in a way where we're evenly distributing it across the landscape. And so it's not, you know, it's, 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 it's always often been all or nothing that we've done instead of kind of like a more natural distribution. But what they're seeing is that it's actually changing some of the plants towards the plant communities that are more favorable to the grazers. So you can actually actually change the landscape. And, and we know this from the past because uh, grazers have done this you know, for, for millennia, but it's using some of our own output to kind of help this process along, which I think is just fascinating. And how does it just, if you can go briefly in about 30 seconds, could <laughs> potentially solve the looming phosphorus scarcity problem? Sure. Uh, well, poop is a, a big source of phosphorus. And uh, so, you know, phosphorus is an essential element. Uh, we all need it. Plants need it. We have a looming scarcity of it. And so a lot of wastewater treatment plants have figured out how to recycle it. And so you can recycle it in pellet form. You can recycle it as a composted fertilizer. And Farmers love it because it is delivering phosphorus and other nutrients back to the soil. So it's a soil amendment. You're treating the soil, you're adding the nutrients back, and and it's a, a desperately needed uh, for for a lot of our soils, which have been degraded over time. Interesting. I think we'll have to have a follow-on show on phosphorus and nitrogen and how this yes. could contribute to that. So our, our guest was Dr. Bryn Nilsson, a science writer and former microbiologist whose debut book, Flush, The Remarkable Science of an Unlikely Treasure just came out in paperback. Bryn, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Susan. It was a pleasure.
that's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer and show producer is yours truly, Susan Moran. This week's show was engineered by Alexis Kenyon. Thanks to Joel Parker and Shelley Schlinder for headline contributions. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. You're listening to KGNU-FM 88.5 Boulder, KGNU 1390 Denver.